We could have done more. So writes Andrew Weissman in his new book, Where Law Ends, the first insider account of Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election and its links to the Trump campaign. Weissman was one of Mueller's top deputies, heading up the investigation and prosecution of former campaign chairman Paul Manafort. But Weissman argues that the Mueller probe didn't go far enough, especially when it came to investigating President Trump's own culpability. But what exactly does he think the special counsel should have done? And how much did Weissman himself speak up about all this at the time? As President Trump remains fixated on the Russia probe, demanding that his investigators themselves be charged with crimes, we'll talk to Weissman about where he thinks the Mueller probe pulled its punches and what it could have done differently on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, you know, it may seem a bit odd that in this time of a COVID pandemic, an election, the final weeks of an election, we're still talking about uh, the Russia investigation. And yet we should note that there are still a lot of folks out there who remain obsessed with it. And first and foremost is the president himself. Yeah, it is uh, a bit ironic that Donald Trump is uh, doing everything he can to keep the Russia case alive. But look, he is the ultimate grievance politician, and he believes that a huge injustice has been done to him. And now he wants, I mean, I think it's revenge. He'll call it justice. And, you know, he is lashing out at anybody who is uh, keeping him from getting that revenge. And right now, it's the attorney general, Bill Barr, who he right. castigated on Fox News. You know, ironically, you, know, he's, you got Weissman, who's critical of Mueller for not going far enough. Now you got Trump, who's critical of Barr for not going far enough or, I guess, fast enough, as he would see it. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, some of these comments that Trump made yesterday in that interview with Fox Business, um, unless Bill Barr indicts these people for crimes, the greatest political crime in the history of our country, then we're going to get little satisfaction unless I win and we'll just have to go because I won't forget it. Pretty much saying that he will demand if he gets another term in office that all the folks who came after him uh, will be charged. Now, it's pretty striking that Axios is reporting as we speak that Barr has been telling Republican senators that the John Durham investigation, the investigation that they've all been waiting for, that the president has been waiting for, is not going to be completed before the election. We won't have more indictments if there are indeed indictments to come. We won't have a Durham report. So we still don't know exactly what it is that uh, Durham has been investigating. We've got 
you know, periodic anecdotal reports that seem a bit scattershot, but exactly where he thinks the meat is, if there is meat, we just don't know. But to have the president now, like, taking shots at bar like this. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I mean, well, first of all, there may be more October surprises, but I think we now know, based on this uh, Axios report, that it will not be the Durham report or Durham indictments. But we sort of glossed over, I think, what's the most shocking about these Trump comments, which he, which is that he is pressuring his attorney general to indict his political rivals. Uh, you <laughs> yeah, know, I mean, right. I, you know, again, it's one of these moments where we've just become so inured to it that it doesn't shock the conscience in the way that it would uh, with, you know, previous presidents, but it should, you know, it's kind of unbelievable. We don't know what Bill Barr, I'm perfectly willing to believe that, you know, there's going to be no Durham report before the election because Durham's just not there yet. He's methodical. He takes forever. He's careful. But I also wonder if Bill Barr has reached his limit with this president, and he understands the lasting damage it would do to his reputation. I can hear some of our listeners already saying that I'm being naive about this. But (laughs) if he did bring indictments or a damning report before the election, I mean... That yeah. would that would be. Yeah, I think Barr knows there are limits to uh, what he could do. And remember, he's already said that um, Obama and Biden are not targets of this investigation. And right. It right. seems to be not on message with where the president is going. A couple other quotes from Trump's comments in that remarkable interview. Uh, to be honest, Bill Barr is going to go down as either the greatest attorney general in the history of the country or he's going to go down as, you know, a very sad situation. He's got all the information he needs. They want to get more, more, more. They keep getting more. You don't need any more. So, you know, there you have it. The president just basically saying, telling Barr, you don't need more evidence. Just go with what you got, which does raise the question, has he been briefed on everything that Durham has done, which is not normally the way things would work? One other point we should take note before we get to Andrew Weissman and his very different critique of the Russia probe. John Radcliffe, the director of national intelligence, has been declassifying bits and pieces of intelligence relating to the 2016 election and Russia ties. And, you know, a lot of people got excited in Trump camp about this, uh, the release the other day, suggesting that uh, John Brennan had briefed the White House on intelligence that the CIA had picked up that uh, Russian intelligence had information that Hillary Clinton was trying to turn the tables away from her email investigation by focusing on Trump-Russia ties. And everybody, you know, in, in the Trump world got, aha, here's the smoking gun. It was all cooked up by Hillary. And, you know, my instant reaction is the Clinton campaign was doing that publicly. Yeah. <laughs> Robbie Mook was going, on cable news left and right saying the real story here is Trump and Russia and Russia's hacking of the DNC emails and they're not doing it to help her. Uh, they're not doing it to help us. They're doing it to help Trump. I mean... Yeah. So, so, yeah, so there are a couple of things. One, yeah, I saw you tweet that. That was exactly right. They were doing it openly, so there's not some like nefarious secret plot here. Two, the Russians were doing that. <laughs> 
We know it. The intelligence yeah. community established that. And three, so Trump and Radcliffe and the administration are relying on Russian intelligence about this. Is it possible that the Russian intelligence is part of a disinformation campaign that is uh, aimed at continuing to do the same thing, which is to say to help Donald Trump and to hurt the Democrats? I mean, the whole thing, there's no there is no logic to it at all. It's just inane. Yeah. Look, I mean, this is clearly selective declassification. We're not getting the whole picture. Now, there may be I don't rule out that there's uh, more interesting details to learn here that might uh, be unflattering to the FBI or the CIA about how they went about things, about how much they knew at the time. If this intelligence is in some way related to Russian knowledge of the Steele dossier and where Steele's sources were coming from and, you know, whether the Russians had planted some of that with Steele. I mean, that's been speculated about. I don't rule that out, especially since we learned that Steele's subsource was suspected of being a Russian intelligence asset in the past. That was a sort of troubling new line that we hadn't seen before that came out a few weeks ago. But, you know, we're only getting a partial picture here. And until we've got a full one, it's really hard to draw any conclusions other than you got a bunch of political actors like Radcliffe doing what they can to try to mollify the president. And clearly it isn't working. And in doing so, are potentially disclosing sources and methods of the intelligence community. Yeah, look, I'm less. I know that's what the intelligence professionals are saying. I'm less excited about that because they always say that when it comes to to, releases of information. No, no, I I agree with you on that, although I did detect a— a higher pitch of outrage about this episode because of that than I have in the past. I thought there was more anger about it specifically on that point. But it's, you know, it's hard for us to judge how damaging or if it's damaging at all. But anyway. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, but we've got a lot to talk about with Andrew Weissman, who has an obviously very different perspective on all this and interesting one, but quite a controversial one because he's uh, riled up a lot of folks, his, including some of his former colleagues in the Justice Department who think he's gone way out of bounds in taking shots at um, his former colleagues on the Mueller probe. Mueller has, himself has pushed back on Weissman's book. But Weissman, I mean, this is the first inside account we've got of the Mueller probe, and in particular, how Mueller reached some of his more controversial conclusions, particularly the one about essentially punting on whether the president committed uh, obstruction of justice. I know you were busy uh, with um, what seemed to be more pressing matters when we did the interview with Weissman, (laughs) so it's just me, but it's worth a listen for all of us, so let's get right to it. We now have with us Andrew Weissman, former veteran DOJ prosecutor, chief of the fraud section, former general counsel of the FBI, 
former top deputy, a top deputy in Robert Mueller's investigation and now the author of Where Law Ends Inside the Mueller Investigation. Andrew, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. So a lot to talk about in your book, a lot of controversy about your book as well. I just thought I'd start out with the title, Where Law Ends, which I understand is from a uh, quote by John Locke, the famous English political philosopher. But it strikes me as, um, as something that has a lot of uh, multiple meanings in this context. So tell me how you chose that title and what you were trying to convey. Well, it comes from a quote from John Locke, which is actually, wherever law ends, tyranny begins. But the shorter version, the where law ends, tyranny begins, is actually inscribed on the limestone walls of the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. So the resonance with the department and what's happened with the department certainly was one way that you can read this. Um, you know, my book begins and ends with the Attorney General Barr's letter for the so-called summary letter. And so I thought that was one way of that being applicable. The other has to do with sort of general way in which in the last few years, we've seen that a lot of what we took to be laws and guardrails are really no more than norms that we had a lot of faith in. So, I th and, and then I think there's also a way it could apply to our investigation. So I thought there were many ways people could read that yeah. title as being applicable to a host of things that we've experienced in the last few years. Right. I mean, I, it's the latter point that that struck me as interesting about this, because um, and this is sort of a theme of the book. And, and you were a prosecutor. Your job was to investigate federal crimes and bring charges if you found uh, the evidence to do so. But that there was the larger question of what was the truth about Trump and his links to Russia, which were sort of beyond what what you could get at through the traditional law enforcement techniques that you were bound by. You know, it seemed to me and that this is a message of the book that, uh, you know, there was a larger truth here, but we couldn't get to it because it was beyond where the law ends. Do I have that right? Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. You know, one example of that is something that none of us had confronted before, which was that the it's extremely complicated the idea of the executive figuring out the proper mechanism to investigate executive branch wrongdoing. But one of the challenges is that appeared in this case is when the executive has the power to pardon or dangle pardons, one of the ways that the law is undermined is that counterweight. So a normal prosecutorial tool is you build a case, you work your way up, as I explained in Enron or organized crime cases. But in this situation, that basic tool was one that had a different gravitational pull than in the normal case. 
Right. So look, I, you know, start out by saying, as a reporter, I'm glad you wrote this book. I we always want more information about major investigations like this, uh, and uh, anything we could get is, uh, you know, adds to our body of knowledge. On the other hand. I do understand why your book has provoked, you know, pretty outraged reactions from a lot of or some of your former colleagues at the Justice Department, not just the ones you take shots at in the book, but uh, DOJ veterans like Randall Eliason, who wrote in The Washington Post on Sunday, I have no patience for Weissman's Monday morning quarterbacking or for his willingness to throw colleagues under a bus for not agreeing with him. We don't want prosecutors in politically charged cases holding back during internal deliberations for fear of being criticized in a book or to feel as if they should always pursue the most aggressive option, lest they risk being attacked. Do you understand why people like Eliason and uh, and others who I've talked to have such strong reactions to you basically, you know, firing shots left and right at the colleagues that you worked with on Mueller's team? So I guess I, you know, obviously it's not going to be a surprise, but I disagree with that. So one, I don't think it's Monday, Monday morning quarterbacking. There was, my book points out lots of ways in which prosecutors, agents, and analysts did a lot of great, wonderful work. There were debates and discussions at the time about things that people would do differently. And, and I think people can disagree and have debate and discussion without thinking it's either controversial or disloyal. And many of those are things, some, some of those things at least, are things that people were talking about anyway, which is you know the issue of subpoenaing the president or conducting a financial investigation. And I, I guess I think that it is better to have that debate in a public and thoughtful way than to think that everybody should just adhere to one view, especially since here, um, if you think about it historically, is it better to have just outsiders speculating about what happened or is it better to have an insider tell the story? Or as you well know from being a reporter, particularly in Washington, one thing I did not do is, you know, the what I'll call the Washington time-honored tradition of people talking to reporters to get one version of events out. Um, and here I was, I did what what is required under pre-publication review, which is I submitted everything to the Department of Justice. Um, they had to you know, vet everything that I could or could not talk about and put my name on it as opposed to doing it in a way that we've certainly seen in the past. Now, of course, one of those who has um, spoken up or released a statement is, uh, is Robert Mueller himself, who you know, you're fairly generous to uh, in the book. Uh, you you worked directly for him at the FBI, but he says you were, you know, he that where you tried to put blame on others. He says I made those decisions, and you were acting out of um, with incomplete information. Your reaction to Mueller's statement. So I agreed with most of what he wrote, and the things that I disagreed with him on are sort of. And I explain his reasoning and I try and 
really have the reader understand why he was doing what he did. And I point out places where I agreed with him and disagreed with him. There are what I would call lesser issues. I mean, those are sort of in the big picture items such as, you know, subpoenaing the president or whether we should have said that um, the president obstructed justice or not in the sort of so-called volume two part of the report. Um, there are other issues where, you know, I recounted my experience in particular with one member, and I wouldn't, I guess the part I would disagree on is I don't think I really took a lot of hot shots. I mean, I think almost everybody in this book comes off pretty well. Well, um, I, I think Aaron Zebley, uh, Mueller's top deputy, may have a different view. You repeatedly yeah, well, call him that, timid, I, timorous. He's General McClellan to your U.S. Grant. Uh, he was afraid that we were all going to be fired, so therefore he wouldn't pull the trigger on major decisions. You take a yeah. lot of shots at Zebley in that book. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I think that's right. As I said, that there was one person. So that's why I was, what I was saying is that I don't think it's fair to say it was sort of a scattershot. But let me just give you an example, actually two examples. One, there are places in the book where I recount wanting to disclose information to the court that I thought was important either because it related to the court's decision on bail or the sentencing decision where there was just enormous amount of pushback um, on that issue. Or there was another example of how we should be dealing with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office where one of the things that happened, which I think uh, was important for people to understand, is that the Deputy Attorney General's Office had asked us not to do that because they didn't want to undermine a potential future pardon. And Aaron had agreed to that. Just one more beat on this, and it's a mega question. And then I want to get into, you know, all the particulars of your critique on the um, investigation. And the mega question is this. You, you have a scene where Mueller gives a talk early on to everybody in which he talks about, you know, basically the ethos of what he expects from federal prosecutors. And that is you do your job, you put up or shut up, you make your case or you keep your mouth shut. And this is, you know, more broadly the trouble that James Comey got into when he made that famous press statement uh, in which he opined on the uncharged conduct of Hillary Clinton, which is ultimately was the, the basis Rosenstein gave for the firing of Comey. Now, clearly, there were other reasons Trump fired Comey, but that did embody what is supposed to be the uh, ethos of a federal prosecutor. You're there for a particular reason. You're given awesome powers to subpoena people, to collect records, see their emails, you know, interview witnesses, put them before the grand jury, and it's for the sole purpose of bringing a criminal charge. And if you can't do it, you, in Mueller's words, are supposed to shut up. Here, you've written a book in which you're opining left and right on uncharged conduct by the people you were investigating. So how, as a veteran DOJ prosecutor, granted you've left the department now, but how do you ethically justify violating the fundamental tenet of what you're supposed to do as a prosecutor? Bring a case or keep your mouth shut. So that tenant which, by the way, I, I talk about in the book, and yes, I you do. have the yeah. same view with respect to James Comey's 
conduct in opining, with, particularly in a case where the department was closing an investigation with no charges. That policy, by the way, can apply even pre post-indictment, but pre-trial as well. Here, it's a really different situation because I actually don't go into uncharged crimes. I do talk about decisions that we made, but you have to remember, in this situation, our private report that was given under the special counsel rules to the attorney general was then publicly released by the attorney general to the public with the permission of the White House. So that decision was there had any been made conceivable by... alternative to that? Of course, no, of course the report not. was of, going to be made of public. Not. Of there course was not. enormous saying... public interest in of... what you had found. Of course, I'm reacting to your point of are you speaking about things that are uncharged and not public? This is already by the Department of Justice been made public with the consent of the White House. So A, talking about Paul Manafort or Rick Gates and their criminality is not uncharged conduct. That is actually charged and been taken, gone to trial, et cetera. And with respect to other matters that are in the book, that's all material that the attorney general has actually made public and the department signed off on all of this under its policies. And not, not in terms of the substance. I mean, those are my views, yeah. but in terms of making right. it public, I followed to the letter um, the pre-publication review process. So I guess I view it as apples and oranges. Right. Okay. I mean, you do certainly speculate about motives quite a bit, whether it be Manafort or Trump or, you know, lots of others. But let's let's get to the substance, because I think there yeah, there is there is a lot of meat to the substance and a lot to talk about. Probably the biggest head scratching that everybody did when we finally got well, first, when we saw Barr's letter and then reaffirmed by the actual substance of the report is that on the obstruction investigation, you didn't reach a conclusion as to whether it amounted to a federal crime. And the first reaction I and a lot of other people had was, wasn't that your job to determine whether there was criminal conduct? That's why Justice Department prosecutors are, are named. That's why a special counsel is named. And the reason that Mueller gave in the report was that because of Justice Department policy that you couldn't charge a sitting president, he thought it was unfair to reach a conclusion as to whether the evidence you gathered amounted to a federal crime. And I guess Having read your book now, it just reaffirmed the question I had from the get-go, which was, didn't you know this going in? You knew what the Justice Department policy was. Mueller knew what the Justice Department policy was, that you weren't going to be able to charge the guy. So if that was the case, why conduct the obstruction investigation to begin with, since it couldn't result in any criminal charges? And did you think through what the implications were and what the end game was going to be, regardless of what the evidence showed? So with respect to the issue of not being able to charge the president, a couple of things. One, we, under the special counsel rules, we're part of the Department of Justice, and it was right. absolutely 
something that we had to follow because we would, could have been fired easily um, for violating that rule. I personally think it would have been very useful for either Rod Rosenstein or the special counsel to make it clear what that policy was so that there would be more of but an wait a second. It was a written. It was a written policy. There are two OLC opinions, one from the Nixon era, one reaffirmed during the Clinton-Reno Justice Department that you couldn't indict a sitting president. Yes, I, but if you think, you you may be aware of that, but I'm saying that the public- <laughs> But you were aware of it. Mueller yes, was aware of it. Okay, why, does I, it why at the end does this come as a bombshell? Oh my God, what are we going to do? We can't charge the guy. You knew okay, that from the get-go. Of course, but you're not really, let me finish first because okay, you're actually sure. focusing not on the right issue. Okay. One, my point was that the public- it would have been useful for the public to know that that could not happen from this investigation. That's, right. that's the only point about that. The second is, what are the ramifications of that? It is not the case just because you can't indict that you can't investigate. Um, in our report, I think correctly, um, and I have no issue whatsoever, points out that of course it's proper to investigate. In fact, the OLC opinions that you just referenced say, of course you can investigate. So there's no issue of like, oh, just because you can't indict, you shouldn't investigate. Well, to what you end Because you want to gather the proof for whatever possibility there is going to be down the road, whether that is an impeachment, whether that is the next, the prosecutor who decides the issue of whether there should be a charge later. But the issue that remained open that was not a foregone conclusion is given the OLC opinions and the DOJ policy, does that mean that you then don't make a conclusion in your report? That is something where you could imagine a different scenario. For instance, one of the things that I posit in the book is the way the special counsel rules work we have the obligation as internal DOJ workers reporting to the acting attorney general, we have an obligation to write a report and then to give a recommendation to the acting attorney general. You could comply with the OLC opinion, which is you can't indict the president, but we could have given our recommendation to the acting attorney general and then the uh, when uh, Barr replace sessions um, with Whitaker in between, we could have given our recommendation. In other words, there's nothing about the OLC opinion that says, by the way, you cannot. Mueller had a very noble position, which was that because it was eventually going to come out what our recommendation was, it would be unfair to say somebody did something wrong when he would not be able to be charged and have his day in court until he was out of office whenever that was. Right. I, I guess what, what puzzles me here is, you know, you have the scene where Dreben, Michael Dreben, who was drafting that portion of uh, the report, you know, shows you what he's written and it's kind of like a, a aha moment. Uh, you know, oh my God, we're really taking this position that we can't reach a conclusion. But what I don't get from the book is whether there was any discussion from the beginning about all this, that this was, you know, you were going down this road, you had real serious evidence of potential obstruction by the president. Obstruction is a federal crime that 
it does not appear that these issues were thrashed out early on about how you would handle what your final conclusions were going to be about the president's conduct. You're surprised when Dreeben shows you what Mueller has concluded towards the end. Yeah, it didn't. To me, it did not come up earlier. And I could easily see why it wouldn't have come up at the outset of the investigation. As I sort of described the timeline with respect to the obstruction investigation, you know, there were three sort of main buckets. There was Team R, Russia, Team M, Manafort and obstruction. Obstruction was looking at a narrower, an important but narrower set of issues involving the Comey firing and the and Flynn. And only as the investigation continued and did it sort of turn on itself. In other words, one of the things that we were tasked with looking at is obstruction of the investigation itself. And so I could see why it wouldn't come up, you know, er- early in the investigation. Well, once you had McGahn's testimony, which was, you know, in 2017, you had it, and he's clearly um, I, giving I you evidence the, that could I lead. I think the key, I think the things that you're referring charges. to are sort of in 2018 from McGahn. Didn't you get him in 2017? No. He may have initially come in, but I think the material, anyway, but in, in any event, we're quibbling because it's still 2018, which is yeah. you know, before 2019. Exactly. <laughs> right. You had plenty of time to thrash this out. And I just, I guess, you know, I, I, I'm just still puzzled as to why there wasn't a fuller discussion of how you were going to handle this, you know, throughout. I can't speak to that. <laughs> um, you know, I, my, um, you know, I was trying to, give a recounting of the challenges externally from either the attorney general or from the deputy attorney general or from the White House um, and the sort of unique powers they had with respect to being able to fire or pardon um, and then be really candid about what I thought, how we met those challenges for good and bad. So people like you can, you know, assess that as well as, you know, the public. Yeah. Well, look, all right, let's let's get into the substance of because, I mean, your basic theme here is we could have done more. Right. We could have you pulled your punches. You didn't go as far as you should have. So I want to sort of go down the particular examples that you cite and then also ask you, you know, something which I've heard from some of your former colleagues is how much did you speak up at the time? about some of the matters that you're now criticizing yeah, absolutely. your colleagues for. So sort of going down the list, and I sort of made a few, let's start with the Trump Tower meeting. And, um, you know, that was clearly a, uh, a bombshell that in emails to Donald Trump Jr. from Rob Goldstone, the publicist. Um, He's told that there are uh, documents from inside Kremlin archives that uh, could be useful to the campaign that would be damaging to Hillary Clinton. And Donald Trump Jr. writes, "If if it's what you say, I love it. The meeting is held with a bunch of these Russian operatives. You, it's clear they don't have what Goldstone was saying. And Goldstone told you that you know, he was just bullshitting. He was just trying to get a meeting. He really didn't have any information about stuff from Kremlin files. 
and you interviewed almost everybody at the meeting, and you know it was it was pretty clear that that which was advertised was never delivered. That doesn't take away from the fact that Donald Trump Jr. jumped at the uh, at the chance that he might be able to get something, but he didn't. And your criticism is you didn't subpoena Ivanka Trump. You call this a clear investigative error. But Ivanka Trump wasn't at the meeting. You had already so that's talked complete, to the people. Michael, that's, that's, I think you're eliding two things. Okay. My issue about not subpoenaing Ivanka Trump was not solely or frankly even the impetus wasn't the Trump Tower meeting. She wasn't at the Trump Tower meeting. Right, she, exactly. She does see people afterwards. But she is part of, um, and where I think you do have your facts wrong, she is part of the how to talk about the Trump Tower meeting a year later and crafting that statement, which was something that we looked at. Um, So there there are sort of two phases of what I call the Trump Tower meeting. There's like what's actually happened at the meeting in um, June of 2016. And then there's the you know, the public statement, which is that it primarily focused on, I'm just paraphrasing, primarily yeah. focused on adoptions. And that is just, that latter is an example of something where, you know, you would want to talk to all of the people you can about how that happened. That's just one example of but the of well the issue the issue was the, the the statement was a statement to the New York Times and look it's not a it's not a crime <laughs> to lie to the news media it happens you know I listen to lies all the time from federal officials but I guess the larger question is why would you think you would get anything from Ivanka Trump you didn't have any emails that contradicted any of her public statements that you could confront her with she's clearly not going to dime out her father or you know or her brother I mean you know it Let me ask you the other way. What would be the reason to interview? Well, one, is that the standard that you would use as a journalist in talking to people that you don't think that it will be productive? And was that the standard that we that is you would use in talking to her husband or brothers? Look, as a journalist, I'm going to talk to everybody and anybody I can. So, so why would that be different? Is, so, why would that be different for a prosecutor? And should the standard be different if you're talking about somebody, whether their gender should matter? No, no, it, it has nothing to do with gender. It's, it's exactly. You know, what is the what is the um, you're going to go through a fairly momentous move to subpoena the daughter of the president. There's the optics, but that's not what should govern it. The question is, you know, what's the likelihood that you can get anything useful out? I mean, this this comes back and we'll get into this about, you know, the ultimate decision about whether to subpoena the president. You know, what are you going to get out of it? Right. And is it going to help your investigation or is it going to spend are you going to spend a lot of time and energy for a subpoena and an interview that's going to be a dead end at the end of the day. I mean, that's a prosecutorial judgment you have to make all the time. Absolutely. And I guess and I guess absent any compelling 
evidence that you had about Ivanka Trump, somebody telling you that she said X and that contradicts what is Y or, you know, a witness who was there who said, I heard Ivanka saying this or an email or something. I don't know. It just it seems like, yeah, in a perfect world, you can interview and subpoena everybody in the world, but you got to make prosecutorial judgments. And I'm just wondering whether that was really a useful avenue. Well, if you don't take it, you don't know. Yeah, right. Now, you do acknowledge in the book you did not speak up about this. You did not protest. You did not write a memo saying we should. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That goes to your point of, you know, this book is not is not supposed to be a sort of, you know, an easy book to have written was we did everything right. We faced a lot of challenges from the White House and from Attorney General Barr, and we met them perfectly. Right. And I didn't I didn't write write that book. Yeah. Yeah. No, you are. Uh, you fess up to where you felt the, the office and you felt short. Another one is um, subpoenaing the financial records of the president. Right. Uh, and this, um, you know, is clearly alive, uh, you know, remains alive issue. And in that case, you know, again, I guess I still have the same question. I, I mean, the Trump Tower project in Moscow was I thought one of the most significant uh, reveals in the course of the investigation. It actually was revealed first by the Southern District, but became part of your report and your case. And it showed that the president was actively pursuing a financial deal in Russia during a time he was telling the public he had nothing to do with Russia. And it was while he was still campaigning as president. I think your facts are slightly wrong, just because remember, Michael Cohen... There were two investigations. There was right. we we kept a piece of it in Team R, so it's not like it was revealed in a different investigation. That no, that no, piece you you farmed off Cohen to the Southern District, and then a piece of it. But didn't they find the emails about Trump Tower Moscow? Was the Southern District the and Trump Tower Moscow information was kept by Team R? Okay. Anyway, that's a small point. All right, small point. You had that. I agree. That was important information. You had the emails from Cohen. You had the emails from Felix Sater, who you also interviewed. And they were the two point people on on that project. You seem to be saying that we should have gone much further, gotten his tax returns, done a full investigation of Trump's finances to try to find links to Russia, which would have been a huge undertaking. You would have probably still, you know, you could have still been at it. Look, and by the way, Cyrus Vance still hasn't gotten records on Trump's finances in the court. So you would have had a huge court battle over that. And again, I come back to, did you have a adequate predicate you could have gone to the court for a subpoena for a full-scale investigation of Trump's finances and or a witness who told you that his finances directly affected the matters that you were investigating and then come back to the same question because as I read your book closely you didn't speak up about that either at the time just remember, I, one of the things I said, not only did I not speak up at the time, but the initial decision 
when we had subpoenaed Deutsche Bank and we got this call from the White House saying, you know, are you investigating the president's finances? I agreed with that initial decision to essentially put that on hold. And obviously reasonable minds could differ on that, but that's one where I agreed with that, that the decision at that point was, look, do you increase the odds of the of being fired at that point? And who knows what the ramifications of that could be. It could kill everything, or it could be like the Saturday Night Massacre where it, it has sort of uh, fuel to the fire. Um, you don't know what would happen. Or do you go forward with the investigation, put, put that on hold, go forward with the uh, investigation that we did do? And Director Mueller made that decision and I agreed with it. My issue was not doing that fuller investigation later. And with respect to predication, I think there are a couple things. One, it's, I think it's a little unfair to say well, tell me what you would have uncovered because like, that's the whole point. You don't know, but it is true. It's fair to ask. But you, you well, got to go to a reason? court yeah, with probable absolutely. cause. For yes, well, you, you don't need probable cause because if that was the standard, that's just not the standard for okay. grand jury right. investigation. But Relevant you do need to, to the have, investigation. Yeah, right. why it's not just fanciful. So the a couple of things. One, at that point, we knew that there was the Trump Tower project in Moscow and that there'd been misrepresentations about it. You did have the statement by Eric Trump saying we don't need to rely on American banks because we have all the funding we need from Russia. Um, and that statement was made in 2014. Did and you ever subpoena Eric the, Trump to ask him what he meant by that? I can't answer that. Okay. The and wait, there was something else I was, oh yeah. And the other is that the appointment order said to look at all links between the Trump campaign and Russia, and that would include financial links. And so the issue was how are we going to satisfy ourselves that we had done that when that was something that was, that we had the acting attorney general telling us to do it. So in terms of your um, predication, as well as obviously one of the things that you look at in any case, the way you would as a journalist is, is motive evidence. So I think there are a whole variety of reasons to revisit it. And my concern, and this is one where, you know, I wrote this book before the New York Times um, right. article came out. And, you know, my first reaction to the New York Times article was, I was, it was sort of, um, my sort of heart sank because I was thinking, you know, is there more we could have done? And this is the kind of thing where, where you know, one of the big questions everyone has is who has this debt? Right. Understanding, by the way, some of the debt may be, this is speculative, but some of the debt may just be inflated to, as, a, as a way of avoiding taxes. But assuming there is some, some debt that is, you know, the hundreds of millions, the issues, right. you know, is any of that held by a Russian government? And well, then we, we, we know who be, we had the debts to because they're listed on his financial disclosure and they're institutional lenders, Deutsche Bank being the major one. But so it's possible that's a cover for something else. We don't know. But exactly. that's in the realm of speculation. You know, very quickly, because I know you have to go. I've given you a little hard time about what you didn't speak up about, but you did speak up 
about the decision not to subpoena the president. And you thought that was wrong. He should have been required to testify uh, and not just give the written answers. And I think a lot of people will agree with that. On the other hand, Mueller's explanation for not doing so was that was going to lead to an endless litigation battle that you admit in the book you might end up losing. And given so I I just want you to address that at the end, because at the end of the day, as we know, that would have gone to the Supreme Court. And it's not at all clear to me that with this Supreme Court, whether it be eight, you know, then it would have been nine. But who knows when it would have gotten to them? Your chances were not great. There are, you know, big differences between Nixon versus USA and this case. So given the pressures and the public demand for knowing what you had uncovered, was it really wrong for Mueller to make the decision, it's not worth it to spend another year or more in litigation over this? The public wants to know what we found. We should get it out. So a couple things. One, in the book, I actually lay out Mueller's thinking. So it's I tell you my thinking, and I'll tell right. you now why I disagree. But just to be clear, I try to lay out his case. I'm not sitting there going, oh, this yeah. is ridiculous. And he's motivated by the purest of motives. It's not like he's you know doing this for some nefarious reason. To me, there are a couple of things. One, I think I have a, a different view as to the likelihood of success Two, on the timing, um, that's something that it's different to say if we had started this process in March of 2019, it could have lasted a year. And um, that's one way of looking at it. The other is that if you started this in March of 2018 or even earlier. In other words, we had the ability to tee this up in a much earlier way to have it come to fruition. And I think the thing that I'm I think I'm most concerned about is the precedent it set um, because here so much was made of what the president's intent was. Just think of Attorney General Barr's summary letter and the Attorney General Barr's press conference where he divined the president's mental state and what he was thinking at the time to exculpate him sort of over and over again. Here, I was very concerned about, one, that if we have the ability to hear from the president and for him to explain his mental state, that is a useful thing in so many ways. And two, what this was going to mean for the next time, God forbid, we're doing a special counsel or an independent counsel, whatever, whatever happens to the rules, that this is going to set a precedent where people are going to say, look, you really don't need to hear from the main actor. All right. Well, listen, I we could go on for quite some time about this and lots of other stuff in the book because there is a lot in the book for anybody interested in the Mueller investigation. It is required reading Where Law Ends Inside the Mueller Investigation. Andrew Weissman, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. 